Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you uh, for the day, and we want to thank you for your word. And uh, as we uh, get into kind of, at times, a a tense and difficult topic, I I pray that you would give us a lot of uh, grace and a lot of uh, wisdom to see what you want us to see. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. There are uh, some things that you just wish were not true, right? That this is true for your whole life. After living here for 17 years, I can tell you something I wish that was not true. I, I wish that the yellow lights in this town were not so short. My wish and my prayer is that the yellow lights would stay longer. That, that may, maybe you could say that this is on me, that I've lived here for 17 years, and I still find myself running red lights accidentally. The yellow light should stay yellow longer. I'm telling you right now, it's wrong. Who's with me? Nobody. All right, all right. So I wish it were true. I can tell you another thing I wish that were true is that I wish I did not have the slowest metabolism known to man. I love sugar. I love sugar so much. And when I'm sad, I want chocolate cake. When I'm happy, I want chocolate cake. When I'm celebrating, I want chocolate. When I'm grieving, I take some chocolate cake when I'm grieving. And I have come to the point in my life in my 40s where my metabolism is so bad that if I dream about chocolate cake, and I'm not saying that happens, although sometimes it does. um, If I have a dream about chocolate cake, I wake up and I have gained five pounds. It's just... That's just, that's just metabolism uh, working against me. Uh, I wish that it were not true that we are so close to another presidential election. <laughs> Politics have worn me out the last five years, so the idea of the domination of the news cycle with all of the ads and the robocalls, robo I'm just, I, w- I wish it weren't true. And I think that there are parts of the story we're going to study today, uh, there, there are parts of the story today that a lot of people, they wish they weren't true. They, re- they really do. And th- that is what we're going to see in this story today is a description of hell. Now, we're also going to see a description of heaven, but we're going to see a description of hell. And, and we get really, really uncomfortable. Like when I, when I talk about like the temperature rising in the room, like, hey, we're going to talk about tithing today. You know, it raises. You know, we're going to talk about submission today. It rises a little bit. We're going to talk about hell today. We don't even do that that often, right? Like if I had known... I, it's time change Sunday, dude, right? If I'd known, I just would have slept in a little bit, right? Now, that, that the temperature rises as you talk about this subject of hell. But I do have to be honest with you, perspective and, and thinking on hell is changing. A recent study showed that 89% of Americans, 89% uh, believe that there is a real and literal heaven. 73% believe that there is a real and literal hell. To put that into context... 20 years ago, just 20 years ago, that number was 55 to 60%. And and for reasons that nobody really understands, that that I found anyway, the number of Americans who believe in hell is on the rise. Aren't we happy, right? The number of Americans, this is something actually younger generations, as, as a doctrine, that younger generations have been willing to accept better than older generations. Sometimes we talk about kind of youth culture and their rejection of kind of core principles. This is actually something younger generations are starting to get right. This kind of doctrine and belief in hell is something that we find our culture embracing more and more. Now, that being said, when you ask people the question that after their death, where do you think you're going to go for eternity? 
76% say they're going to heaven. 2% say they're going to hell. 4% say they're going to purgatory. 12% say they're going somewhere else. And 6% refuse to answer, right? Where, where do you think you're going to go when you die? Shut your mouth. I'm not answering, right? That sort of thing, right? 6% just refuse to answer. And so let me show you the story first, and then we're just going to dissect it from a couple different angles, okay? Here's the story. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger into the water to cool my tongue because I am in agony because of this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, there is a great chasm that has been, uh, that, that is in place uh, between, between us. And he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers. Let him warn them uh, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So let's start with a couple kind of things here. First of all, the problem for this man is not that he's rich, right? There are plenty, and there are a lot of examples of very blessed, faithful, rich people throughout the Bible. Abraham, in the story, had been really financially blessed from, by, by God. Solomon, David, several followers of Jesus. I think that it would be wrong to say that this guy's eternity was determined because of his net worth. I think that would be wrong. Simply having money was not this dude's problem. I think the problem was not that he was rich. I think his problem was that he had a richness of spirit. He is a rich guy whose relationship to money was evidence, not the cause. All right, that's different. His relationship to money was evidence that he had almost no relationship to God at all. He did not know God at all. He's Look at some of the ways he's described, right? He's selfish. He's entitled. He's prideful. He's arrogant. He's self-sufficient. He re re refuses to help the people near him. Jesus said one time on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is the first beatitude for a reason. I think every other beatitude is affected by that beatitude. That when we are poor in spirit, when we're humble, when we come to Jesus with humble hearts and we're faithful and we love him and we're poor in spirit, we know that we need him. When we're poor in spirit, we tend to mourn and hunger and thirst for righteousness. We, we tend to do all the things that the other Beatitudes do. So just his net worth was not the problem. The net worth is mentioned because it's a symptom of a bigger disease that he has. He's rich in spirit. He is a stereotypical kind of person that is embracing their riches instead of embracing their relationship 
to, to God, he, he's almost like a caricature in that way. And, and so it, it's, it's a symptom of a bigger problem. This richness of spirit that I don't need God directly results in his attitude, I shouldn't have to care for others. And all of that, it runs, you guys know this, right? You're in church on a Sunday morning. You're watching online, whatever. That this runs so counter to all of Christianity. The message of Christianity is, I'm sinful. You're sinful, I'm sinful, we're all sinful. We all have this problem. We're in need of a savior and his saving grace and love changes the way we relate to God to be sure, but also changes the way we treat the people around us. So I get that this story happens before the resurrection, but there are still elements of grace and following God in the Old Testament story. There's calls to be faithful. There's calls to give your life to him. There's calls of mercy and grace. And there is absolutely zero evidence in this story that this guy has accepted that call, the call of God to be in a relationship with him. There's zero evidence that this guy has accepted the call. And I think it's really important to understand that the game is not changing in this story. I think this story can be hard to read because, man, I thought I was saved by grace. Now all of a sudden it seems like poor are saved and rich are not. This story is not changing the way that we, we, we save. This is why you always want to understand Scripture in light of Scripture. Even Luke's own writings would demonstrate for this for us. When you look at Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and when you look at those two writings, you see Luke repeatedly affirming how a person comes to be saved and that it is by grace, it is through the work of Jesus, he is the one through which we are saved, not our net worth or our lack of net worth. It has nothing to do with it. It might be a symptom, it could be a symptom like it was for this guy where our, our riches are kind of telling, calling us out a little bit. Uh, it, it, could, it could be a symptom, but it is not the cause at all. And throughout the book of Luke, throughout his writings, we see him describe for us how a person comes to be saved. Like, for instance, very early in his book, Luke 177, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 77, he's telling the story of John the Baptist, the pre-runner to Christ. He said, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet in the paths of peace. Uh, And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly in Israel. So he says, John... You're going to prepare the way for the Savior. You're going to go before him, and you are going to point people, you're going to point people out their need for forgiveness, their need for mercy, their need for grace, their need for a light in the darkness. You're going to, John, you're going to prepare the way for the Savior. And so then Jesus will come, and because of, John, the work that you've done, People will recognize the Savior, they'll recognize his grace, and they'll recognize his mercy. That's Luke 1, 77. 77 verses into his gospel. He's telling us how we are saved. That we are saved through the work and the grace of Jesus. Later when Jesus comes, uh, is born, his parents take him to the temple. And there's an old guy, uh, Simeon, there. And he sees Mary and Joseph. And let me show you what happens next. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying... Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. I love this. Because so many people, when you ask them, what do you want to do with the last years of your life? Some people will say, Hawaii or Disney World, or I want to travel more. This guy was like, I want to see the Savior. God, if you would grant me that grace, I just want to see the Savior. And then Jesus comes to, and to be consecrated in the temple, and he says, oh, my eyes have seen. This salvation is going to come. And Simeon calls way before anybody else. Simeon calls, it's going to be for the Gentiles, those that aren't Jewish. And it's going to be for Israel, those that are. Right? If you're not good at math, that's all people. Right? That's all people. That this gospel of grace and forgiveness and mercy and peace, this good news is for everyone. And it's available to everyone through faith in Jesus. By grace, through faith. Later, after Jesus' resurrection, all right? So Jesus has lived his life. He's been crucified. He's resurrected. And Peter gets up and he preaches the first sermon. And the first sermon is like, you just killed the Son of God. Point one, you did that, right? At point two, why did you do that, right? Point three, you need to repent. And, and he preaches this really, really hard sermon. And toward the end of it, in Acts 2, he says, Peter, Luke records, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. It's like this grace, it is available to you. This forgiveness is available to you. This peace, is, it, is, it is available to you through Jesus Christ through his work, through his example, through his resurrection, through his sacrifice on the cross. This is available to you. So Luke is not changing the game here. He's kind of sharing with us a, a story about a guy who was rich, who happened to be rich, who had not placed, obviously had not placed his faith in God or in Jesus and was struggling to trust in his riches instead of Jesus. So the gospel is not the rich are condemned and the poor are saved. That it's all determined by your net worth. That's not the gospel. Even all throughout the writings of Luke, he says it differently. We are all sinners. We're all separated. We're all doomed. And then these two wonderful, wonderful words. We're all sinners. We're all doomed. But God. But God. But God, through his son, he came to a cross and he rescued us and he redeemed us and he paid for those sins that we have committed. And by his grace, through faith, we are saved. And this rich guy, he didn't get it. He didn't get it. He didn't get it because he was rich per se. There's probably a whole lot of other reasons he didn't get it. But he was a rich guy. It could have just as easily been a story about a poor guy. He was a rich guy who didn't get it. I like how Tim Keller says it, right? This is a little bit of a wordy quote, but if you'll indulge me. The universal religion of humankind is we develop a good record and we give it to God. So he's like, this is how a lot of the world thinks about being right with God. I'll develop my good record and I'll give it to God and then he'll owe us. That's not the gospel, Keller says. The gospel is God develops a good record. Jesus develops a good record and he gives it to us. And we owe him. All I owe to Jesus, everything to him I owe. So he says that, that the, the way the world kind of views the gospel, that's no gospel at all. 
In short, to say a good person, not just Christians, can find God is to say works are good enough to find God, and they're not. You can believe that faith in Christ is not necessary, or you can believe that we are saved by grace, but you cannot believe in both at once. So he says the apparently worldly inclusive approach is really quite exclusive. It says the good people can find God and the bad people cannot. But what about us moral failures like you and me? What about us moral failures? He says in the gospel of the world where you develop a good record and you give it to God and he owes you, we are excluded. But the gospel says the people who know they aren't good, they can find God. And the people who think they are good do not. Then what about non-Christians, all of whom must, by definition, believe their moral efforts will help them reach God? They are excluded in the gospel. He said, so both approaches are exclusive, but the gospel is the most inclusive exclusivity. How about that? This guy's smarter than me, right? That's why I'm just reading it verbatim, right? It says joyfully, The gospel says joyfully, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've been at the gates of hell. You can be welcomed and embraced fully and instantly through Christ. So there is no system that's not exclusive. But Christianity is the most inclusive, exclusive system. Because it says anybody... It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or what sins you've committed. All can come to the foot of the cross and be embraced fully by Jesus. You can be rich. You can be poor. You can be seen as good in this world or bad. You can be any number of things. It doesn't matter. What matters is the work of Christ on the cross. That's what saves us. So this story is not changing the way the game is played. So I'll do sermons on marriage I love doing sermons on marriage because I want to see us as a church. I want to see us have healthy marriages. We do sermons on financials, on money. And I know you don't like it, but we do them. Um, spoiler alert, I don't like them either, right? So uh, we, we, do, we do sermons on financials, and I think that's important too. We do sermons on family, and in the context of this current culture, I think it's so important to preach on family. This is a story, and this is a sermon about eternity. And so there's some weight to this story. Did you feel it as I read it earlier? There's some weight to this story because it feels different than a lot of other stories that we study and read. So let's talk about what these guys have in common. One's rich and one's poor, so they don't have their net worth in common. What do they have in common? Well, one thing they have in common is they both died. Welcome to Northwest. (laughs) And you will too. Hopefully not today, right? That's the thing they have in common. The time came where the rich man, he died. His net worth couldn't save him. There came a time where he died, and there came a time where the beggar died. And I know it is not fun to think about. I I get that it's not fun to think about, but I did some extensive study, and the death rate in human history, it is hovering right around 100%. (laughs) Right around. There's a couple exceptions. 99.9999, you know, statistically 100%. I'll die. You will die. They both die in this story. Now, I'd love to live a long life. I've asked God for that. I want to accomplish all that God wants me to accomplish. We're called to love life because God is the author of it. So I get loving life, but we really, we don't want to live in denial, right? 
right? Here's how, um, look, look, before I get to there, we, we don't want to live in denial. So they both die, and here's the other thing they have in common. They both end up in a place for eternity. This is also true for everyone. Here's how Hebrews 9 says it. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of the many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So the rich man and the beggar, seemingly, they have almost nothing in common. One lives in a castle, the other lives on the street. One has a huge net worth, one has a negative net worth. They don't seem to have, one probably is really uh, connected to their family. I I would guess that the beggar probably ended up alienated from his family at some point. It would seem in the story that that's the case anyway. So they have nothing, they have none of these things in common. They do have two things in common. They both died and they both, their their eternities, they, they both found a place somewhere in eternity. One ends up in hell And this is where you get the difficulty of this text. Is this a story? Is this a parable? Or is this real life? Um, People have debated this for years and years and years. And I told Cheryl I was just going to avoid it altogether, but now I'm not avoiding it altogether. Right? So, you know, that, that people have debated this for years and years. If it's a parable, it's a little bit of a different parable in that Jesus doesn't typically give people names in parables. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before, but when Jesus tells a parable, there's typically not names involved in the parable. So this would be a very unusual telling of a parable. But is this, uh, is it a parable? Is it real life? People debated that. Is it meant to be a graphic, actual description of hell with fire and torment? Or is it meant to be hyperbolic? Right? And so we, one of the things we know, Gehenna, the word for hell in the New Testament that's used most often, it was a trash dump outside of the city. And so a lot of people are think, think that maybe Jesus is being hyperbolic in his storytelling here to, to say to people, man, that hell, it's like Gehenna. It's like that trash dump. You don't want any part of it. And by the way, you could say the same thing about the passages of heaven. Um, are they literal or are they hyperbolic? So for instance, when you read the passages of heaven, are the streets literally paved with gold? Or was John in his writing in Revelation trying to say, this is the most beautiful thing you, you can imagine, the, the streets, they're, they're paved with, with gold. And, and so that, that's the question about hell too. Is it real and literal or is it hyperbolic? And here's what I want you to see. It doesn't matter. I just wasted three minutes. <laughs> it doesn't matter. What this text is trying to do, what Jesus is doing, is he's portraying hell in a way that we would understand we don't want to be there. That's that's all he's doing. And I think he's done a really good job of helping us see that, to to be honest. Because when you kind of start to pull people, you know, far and away, nobody, I mean, every once in a while you'd be like, oh yeah, hell, I'm gonna be with my drinking buddies and you know, we're gonna be hanging. Every once in a while you'll get that, but mostly what you'll get is, no thanks. I, I, I would rather not have any part of that. So Jesus has done a good job of describing hell in this way that we are walking away with the, this belief that we don't want any part of it. Now, there are three theories when it comes to hell. Um, one theory is that it doesn't exist at all. Some people, that number, as I ch- shared earlier, that number is changing. It doesn't exist at all. The other is an annihilist theory. And that that says that when Jesus comes, there'll be a temporary hell, but eventually Jesus will just destroy all of it. 
And, and so while there'll be a temporary hell, eventually there's this annihilist view that someday it'll just all be destroyed and there is no kind of eternal, eternal hell like there is an eternal heaven. And, and that's the third kind of theory when it comes to hell is that just like there's an eternal heaven, there is an eternal hell. And my reading of the scriptures, that's where I would tend to camp out. But you need to know there are not very many verses, honestly, uh, uh, that... that about this subject, about hell. Um, we'll talk about that, why that is more in a minute. But really what hell represents versus the details is hell represents life absent God. Whether you believe in eternal hell or a one-time annihilation, hell is absent God. So if you think about it this way, I believe right now we live in an age of grace. Right now, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right, That, that 100%, I'm going to get to that in this message, 100%. We live in in an age of grace right now. But here's what we see in our world. Any light that you see in this world, any good that you see in this world, any grace that you see in this world, I believe, whether people realize it or not, I believe that's from God. That you're seeing that light because of God or his people. That you're seeing that light. We are the city on a hill. You're seeing that light, you're seeing that good, and you're seeing that grace because of God and his people. I want you to think for a minute. If you were to rip all of that good and grace and light out of our culture, if you were just to take it all out, I think then you would begin to see a possible description of hell. That a place of no light, of no good, of no grace. So one ends up in hell, The other ends up in heaven. And I love what the text says. The text says that the beggar struggled here on earth. But you notice what it said? In heaven, he is receiving good things. This is the tone of every funeral I preach for a follower of Jesus. Every single one. Their cancer was tough. Their dementia was terrible. Their health issues were overwhelming, but they are receiving good things from the Lord. And there are so many images of heaven in the Bible, but it is a place of grace and life and good, a place of the presence of God. So if you look at our kind of what we're talking about now, that, that we're in an age of grace right now and any light, good grace that you see, it, it, that, that is from God. If you look at it in the other direction, if you were to remove from that sickness and death and disease and sin and evil and all of that stuff and you were left with only good and God and grace, you would begin to see an image of heaven. So the question of eternity is not, we get this wrong. The question of eternity is not, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? Everybody knows the answer to that, right? If, if you were to go out to our mall today, I would not recommend this because you're going to get arrested. But if you were to go out to our mall today and you were to do a man on the street, hey, do you want to go to heaven or hell? I'm calling 911. But if, if you were to ask that question, I guarantee you a huge percentage of people would answer they want to go to heaven. That's not the question of eternity. The question of eternity is, do you want life? Do you want grace? Do you want good? Do you want Jesus as your Lord? Do you want a Jesus on the throne in charge of all things? Heaven is that kind of place. Hell is not. Here's what my friend Rex said that I'm preaching this series with. He's a little bit, we're off weeks, so I got his manuscript a couple days ago. 
I was like, I like doing it this way. All right, so he says, the un- uncomfortable truth is not heaven. We like the idea of heaven. The uncomfortable truth is hell. Some of you have heard me preach long enough to know that I do not preach on hell that often, not because I don't believe it exists, I do believe it exists, but because I believe it is more effective to love people into heaven than scare them out of hell. And Rex's point here, and I think it's true, it's one of the reasons you see way more verses on heaven than you do on hell in the Bible, way more scriptures on Jesus and grace and love than you do on the other. Um, One of the reasons you see that is fear fails to instill faith long-term. It just does. It's not a a strategy that is very effective. Fear's not. This was a strategy used for years in Christianity. Scare the idea of hell right out of them, right? And fear as an emotion, it's just not sustaining. You know what the Bible says? Perfect love Cast out fear. So as we talk about eternity, here's what I want you to see. There's a lot of tension as we talk about eternity. According to the Bible, when you think about eternity, there is absolutely no reason to be afraid. There's no reason to wonder, even. There's no reason uh, to be concerned. Jesus has made a way. And so as we talk about eternity and we talk about heaven and hell and all of that stuff, that we want to have a fear of the Lord, a reverence and a a fear of him, the one who holds heaven and hell in his hand, that that is biblical. But in terms of like, where am I going to go, being concerned, being afraid in, in that way, the Bible would say there is no reason to wonder. It's important to remember that this story happens before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But even still, the point to the rich man is that there has been an overwhelming call of God in your life, rich man, to choose God, right? And in God, you would have found life and grace and good and eternal life. So he mentions there's Abraham in the story. He's like, God gave you Abraham, the one that God called to leave his family's household and begin to plant this nation through which the entire world would be blessed. Moses is mentioned in the story, the one through whom God gave the law, the law that shows us our need for grace. The prophets are mentioned, the ones for whom God used to preach about sin and repentance and life in God. All of these people are are mentioned, and what is said to the rich man, what this story is really about is not hell or heaven. What this story is about is saying to the rich man, hey, you've got to own one thing here. God has been calling you the entire time. That's what you've got to own, rich man. God had been calling you the entire time. God was inviting you the entire time. God was urging you the entire time. You got caught up in this world and riches and net worth and serving yourself and taking care of yourself and ignoring others. You got caught up in that worldly lifestyle, but don't kind of place this on God. God gave you Abraham. God gave you Moses. God gave you the prophets. God has been urging you and begging you and pleading with you to come to a relationship with him your entire life. Now, I'm going to preach into you just a little bit here, all right? Because we have something that this rich man didn't have. We have Abraham, we have Moses, and we have the prophets. You know what we have that he didn't have? Resurrected Jesus. Resurrected Jesus. So we have his life. 
how his words and his teaching are telling us life is found in me. We have his death. How he would say, man, I'm going to pay for your sins. So your sins are forgiven in me. And you can have a relationship with my father that you were created to have in this life and the next. And we have his resurrection. How his resurrection, it is the great exclamation point in human history. It says, man, I said life is found in me. My resurrection proves it. I said grace is found in me. My resurrection proves it. I said eternity, heaven. Uh, heaven, it is found in me. My resurrection proves it. Goodness is found in me. My resurrection proves it. We have something this rich man never had. We have the resurrected Christ. We have the resurrected Christ saying, life is found in me. This life and in the next. It is found in me. And he is calling. He is pleading. He is inviting you to come to a relationship with him where life is can be found. There's this really interesting part of the story. The rich man begs Abraham at the end of the story, and he says, hey, I've got, I've got family, man. I've got family, and I've been separated from God, whether it's a parable or a story, whatever it is. I've been separated. Send Lazarus to warn my five brothers. And here's what he said that is so interesting. He said, if they did not listen to Moses, and they did not listen to the prophets, they would Will they, not, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You know what he did a year and a half later? This very thing. That's how much God loves mankind. That in this story, he says, man, if they didn't believe Moses, if they didn't, if they didn't believe the prophets, they, but he, they won't even believe someone that raises from the dead. But I can't, I, I still got to do that. I've got to give them every opportunity to know me and worship me and follow me. So a couple years after this story takes place, Jesus does this very thing to plead with you, to plead with you to come to him, to invite you to come to him, to find life in him. When it comes to eternity, you don't have to wonder, you don't have to be scared, you don't have to be concerned. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sim had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. So in Christ is life, in Christ is eternity, in Christ is grace, in Christ is all. And he said, man, I've given you Abraham, I've given you Moses, I've given you the prophets, and now I've given you my resurrected son, Jesus. Would you please trust in him? So right now, I know I'm preaching kind of hard. I'm going to nap later. It's okay. Right? right now, we have all the evidence. The point of this story is not heaven and hell. It's we have all the evidence we need. We do. All the evidence we need for a decision about Jesus, for a decision about God. We have the resurrected son. And sometimes we make things more complicated than they need to be when it comes to faith. It really is kind of simple. This is what the resurrected Jesus says. This is where life is found. This is where eternity is found. This is where grace is found. Do you believe? And some will. And Jesus even predicted here, man, if they didn't believe in Moses and they didn't believe in Abraham, they didn't believe in the prophets, perhaps they wouldn't even believe someone raising from the dead. We are praying that's not true, right? For our community and for the people that we know and love, that they would see the resurrected Christ, the great exclamation point in all human history. They would see the resurrected Christ and they would put their faith 
in him. So in your bulletin today, we're starting a series on Easter Sunday. And you'll find a little just simple invitation. The back of it says you're invited to a new series at my church that is starting on Easter Sunday, April 9th, 9th that will explore who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. The name of the series is going to be called Jesus Christ Superstore. Uh, and the idea of the series is that we have a tendency to want to walk through the store aisles with our shopping cart and grab the elements of Jesus that we like. So we're like, oh, you know, I see grace is half off here. You know, I'll, I'll take a little bit of grace, but I'm going to stay away from the truth aisle, right? Oh, Lord, I'm going to stay clear of the Lord aisle, but Savior aisle, I'll, I'm going to load up my cart on the Savior aisle. I could use some of that. And we have a tendency to do that. And so we're going we're gonna to spend, uh, how many weeks is say for, Several weeks, it doesn't say, several weeks. And we're just going to explore, we think it's this or it's this. But what if it's both? What if he came in grace and truth? What if he came to be our Lord and Savior? What if he is our king and our friend? That he's not either or, he's both. And I am hoping and praying that this is going to start Easter Sunday I am praying that this is going to be a potent, potent series that's going to point people to who Jesus is and what he came to do. So I wanted to make you aware of it today because it ties so into what we're talking about here, that when we have the resurrected Christ, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm beating it pretty hard here, but it's true. They had Moses, the prophets, uh, and Abraham. We have the resurrected Christ in addition to that. So we have everything we need to make a decision. We just need to point people in the right direction. And so this is going to be a fun series. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, really, uh, really thought-provoking as we think about, do we do that? Do we, even as followers of Jesus, do, the, do we do that with Jesus? You know, kind of go down the little aisle with our shopping cart and be like, yeah, I'd love to have me some Savior. But Lord, I'm going to pass on that for this week. You know, do we, do we do that? And so we're going to lift Jesus up and we're going to lift him high. And uh, we'd love to have just... This room full on Easter Sunday. Uh, so that, that's going to start on April 9th, Easter Sunday. And I'd love for you to invite some people uh, to, to that, to sit with you. Um, this is our job right now. I've mentioned a couple times in this sermon, we are in this age of grace. And right now, like I said, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. And so that makes what's happening right now kind of urgent. For us, right? It makes it kind of urgent that we want to point people to Jesus. We want to lift him high. We want them to see him and make their own decision. They might say, man, I, I didn't believe Abraham, Moses, the prophets, and I, I'm still not even believing that. That, that. that This text may come true in that way, but I think a lot just haven't heard the true resurrected Jesus. And they will be brought in to his grace and brought in by his love. It'll be different than anything they realize. He'll be different than anything they realize that he was. But our job during this time of grace right now before the second return of Christ is to lift him high. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. Um, this story, um, is it a parable? Is it a true, actual, historical accounting event? What, what is it? That, that's interesting, but it's really not what the story's about. The stories about a guy that had everything he needed to make a different decision because you would come for him 
and you had invited him. You maybe even pleaded with him, you could argue. He had everything he needed. And now, in your grace, you said, man, I don't know if they'll even be convinced if someone rises from the dead. No, I'll do that too. I'll rise from the dead. And you have just demonstrated your power and your grace again and again. And so we are without excuse. We have everything that we need in you. So I pray that uh, anybody in this room, that, that you would stir them to come closer to you today. Anybody listening online, but especially as we approach Easter, that we would feel motivated to lift you high, to, to lift the banner of who you are high so that people might have a life-changing relationship with you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Uh, We're going to lift him high right now as we receive communion together, an opportunity to remember his death, burial, and resurrection. And just a man, thank him for inviting us. We are saved by grace, through faith, but by grace, because he, he invited us. And so we're invited to the party through the cross. It's an opportunity for us to thank him and then leave here motivated to change him with others. So they'll pass the emblems out and uh, you can just spend some time thanking him for his grace. And then I'll come back up in a few minutes and we'll receive it all together as a church family. His body given for you. His grace poured out. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the great exclamation point of human history that you are who you said you are and you can do what you said you can do. May we lift you high this Easter season. May we point people to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to close here with a song of worship. I'm gonna, I want to do something just a little bit different than what I personally normally do uh, on a Sunday morning. Normally I finish my sermon and I go out into the hallway. Uh, I'm going to stay up here in the front row and, and sing the final song. And I, I'm just going to stand up here for a little while. And if you have any questions uh, or anything and, and want to come up and talk to me, I would love for you to do that. But also, if you've got someone in mind that you're thinking about inviting to Easter services, I would love to pray with you about that. And just pray that God would give you an opportunity and that God would open a door and that you'd have the courage to go through it. So if God was stirring up someone in your heart that said, man, I, I know someone that could use a series that's just going to lift Jesus high and lift his name high. I'm just going to stand right up here after church uh, for 10 10 minutes or so, and you come forward, and I'd love to pray with you uh, as we get ready to leave this place. So let's stand and sing one last song.